Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. You know, we were talking about, uh, I'm a former Marine, and we were talking at the meal about what I'm afraid of. And uh, this week, the only thing I'm afraid of is Cliff Lee. Uh, thanks for having me in Dallas. And I haven't been here in about six years, and it's changed a lot, and it looks great. And I, uh, I'm really struck by your city. It's sparkling. I, go to, I travel all over the world, and I don't see a lot of cities that like, look like this one. And uh, I hope you all really appreciate how nice you have it here. It's just wonderful, and, uh, and it, it's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to tell you a little bit about me, because then you can understand a little bit about what we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm kind of an accidental journalist. I didn't intend to become a foreign correspondent, much less a war correspondent. I served in the Marine Corps. Uh, I signed up not in 1980. It was 1988 uh, that I started active duty, but I first became compelled to join the Marine Corps in 1983. I was a freshman in college, and the Beirut barracks were blown up, uh, and they killed about 300 Marines and sailors. It was my first six weeks of college, and it was in many ways sort of my first six weeks out of the house. And I looked at uh, the Newsweek, it was an, an issue of Newsweek, at the pictures of those young guys. They were my age, almost exactly, uh, maybe a year or two older in some cases, pulling on the rubble, digging out their buddies. And I looked at the guys I was in college with, and I felt much more attracted to the guys I saw in Newsweek than the cohort that I was going through college with. That was my first assessment. Uh, it stuck with me. I started talking to a recruiter. By 1985, I'd signed the papers, spent a couple summers going through the training, and in 1988, I was commissioned and did about six and a half years as an infantry officer on active duty. I did the first Gulf War. I was a company commander in the Los Angeles riots doing peacekeep during peacekeeping duty. I did some election security in the Philippines doing jungle patrols. It was a pretty eclectic mix of time, very busy. 1994, there wasn't much going on. You remember the Cold War had ended. Uh, this war that had, I thought had started in 1983 when they knocked down the barracks hadn't really been appreciated yet, not by me, not by anybody else. And uh, I got out. I became a journalist. I thought, I'd like to learn how to write. I'd like to be part of the civil conversation in this country, which is important. It's, it's essential. Uh, so I signed up for a newspaper, got a good break, got a job, got hired by a Vietnam vet, and covered, you know, they basically said, you look like a cop, Chris, so go cover the cops. Uh, so I did. I covered police and fire departments and local government and school boards. I took obituaries. I typed lunch menus in the back of the newspaper uh, and enjoyed it. I never thought that I would be a war correspondent, or even a foreign correspondent. But in 1999, the New York Times asked me to come down, and they had said, you know, we've looked around the newsroom a bit, and we don't have a lot of young guys now lined up to be war correspondents. History tells us we're going to need them again. Would you consider doing it? So I said, sure. You don't, you know, you don't say no to that. And I sort of reoriented, reoriented my life, moved down to New York. They said, you look like a cop, Chris. Go cover the cops. Uh, so they put me down at the New York Police Department. I covered crime for a couple years. I was there one morning 
about nine years ago, early in the morning, when the World Trade Center got knocked over, right next to me. Uh, I was running into the second building when the second plane came in, and been running ever since. One of the first things I noticed when I started running and went back out into the world, now a former Marine with a press pass, not a combatant, not a rifle, just a camera and a pencil, basically. Uh, one of the first things I noticed in Afghanistan is the Taliban was running away, and we got into their buildings and their houses, and we kind of rifled through their papers, and we found their training notebooks, was that every class in every notebook, every student curriculum, if you will, every teacher's ledger, the first class at all the jihad schools was the automatic Kalashnikov, the, the AKM, they call it, the modernized automatic Kalashnikov, the very first class. You know, they talk about gateway drugs, and I knew then I was looking at a gateway weapon, and I knew that I was looking at a weapon that had come a long, long way from its origins in a society that was officially an atheist society. How did the godless gun made by the Soviet socialist world end up having its meanings so twisted, so changed, so altered, so reassumed to become the weapon that was against pretty much modern civilization, not just socialism, not just capitalism, but against a whole larger set of ideas about how we all think we live our lives. So a friend and I wrote a story about the jihad training. How does a kid become a jihadi based on all these different notebooks? Uh, we had a lot of material, you know, big stacks of documents. We worked with eight translators, because it was in, they were in eight different languages. We brought it all into English, uh, found that this was pretty consistent, what I had just described for you. We wrote a story, though, generally about who these kids were, where, where they came from, how they were trained, what their, in sort of a security sense, their capabilities were. And in there, we wrote one sentence about, hey, they all seem to be carrying the same gun. Um, from that, sort of the itch that you can't quite reach and scratch developed. I wanted to know more. I said, where did this weapon come from? How did there get to be so many of them? Why are they so widely used? What makes them effective? And I spent you know, the following nine years going around the world, interviewing everybody I could, probably walked about 200 foot patrols in Afghanistan or Iraq uh, with the Marines, with the Army, with the Afghan Army, with the Iraqi police, et cetera, fill in the blanks. Spent a lot of time in Chechnya, interviewing combatants and victims of all sorts to try to understand this weapon. Went to the factories where they're made. I interviewed the guy who's credited with inventing it several times, met him repeatedly. And I came away with a different set of ideas than what I had started out on. The weapon isn't out there because it's a good weapon, although it's a pretty good weapon. It's not a perfect weapon. It gets good press, better press than it deserves. It's a very effective weapon. The reason it's out there is because it was hooked up to a system that you and I can't naturally understand. Those of you who are in business, and you know if you're in manufacturing or sales, you don't sell, or you don't make or buy anything you can't sell, right? If you're running, let's say you're making toasters, you're not going to make 10 million toasters if you have orders for a dozen. You can't pay the wages, you can't pay your electric bill, you can't pay the storage costs for that, you're not going to do it. This gun was made that way, it was made according to the planned economy. It had a priority of resources from more than 10 different governments that were producing it, who essentially almost did not pay their workers. They had priority of resources. They got the electricity. They got the bus lines that brought the workers to the plants. They got the security. 
They had the best minds, if you will, in the technical sense from their design bureaus in the country, all applied to fine-tuning this weapon and ensuring its production and making sure that the production went smoothly and quickly. They made them whether they were ordered or not. You know, Colt makes a pretty good rifle, the M4 carbide, uh, up in West Hartford, Connecticut. Colt doesn't make a million rifles if they have an order for 5,000. They make maybe 5,020, a few extra for the sales team and for demonstrations and the like. This weapon got made in quantities that might reach 100 million. And then the second half of this component is that it got made by governments that we now know weren't nearly as strong as they looked. Those governments looked really fearsome in their day but they collapsed very quickly, like someone pulled the pin out of the scaffolding. The Soviet Union went away. The Warsaw Pact dissolved. These, we these governments were very, very brittle. The successor governments were very, very vulnerable to all sorts of common crime. They were, in the simplest sense, dishonest governments, run by, in many cases, dishonest people, and the guns broke out. They went out of all these storehouses, warehouses, if you will, arsenals. You know, the colonels who had the keys sold them. Or in some cases, as in Albania and many other countries, they were looted to the ground in Iraq. And so all the government's weapons that were stockpiled just vanished very quickly. Well, they didn't really vanish. They went out of state custody. They went out of the hands of the people who had the keys. And they, through a range of means, they move liquidly, almost like rain. You can move them out of the Balkans down into Africa with a bunch of airlines you've never heard of, but will move things quickly, cargo airplanes. And if you've heard of the airline uh, this week, next week that airline may have a different name. It's an endless game of shifting letterhead, re-registering companies in Cyprus or Gibraltar, and uh, getting a bunch of pilots. And I've seen a couple of these guys, they'll climb down out of their Aleutian aircraft wearing sandals and shorts. Uh, they know how to fly these planes, and they do and they moved them all around in the biggest sense. We're talking lots now of many thousand guns, excuse me, many thousand guns at a time. Once they get on the ground, they move through all the sort of commercial ways that anything else moves. They move around like narcotics, they move around like food. People buy them up. If you're in one war and they cost, people have told you they cost as much as a chicken. That's one of those lies that becomes a fact because it gets repeated so many times it starts to feel like truth. Repetition isn't truth. The Kalashnikov costs six, eight, nine hundred dollars typically. You can get them cheaper uh, out in the field. You can get them four or five hundred bucks. It's at a conflict zone. After a war, the price will sink. You know, supply and demand. When people feel safer, they're not looking for guns as much. The price might go down to 150, 200, 300 bucks. When they do that, guys like you and me, people who have a sense of the dollar, buy them up. They buy them up by the ones and the twos and the tens and the hundreds and they move them around to the next war where there's six or eight hundred bucks. And they'll make, you know, it's an eight-pound item. If It's not hard to move an eight-pound item around, and there's a pretty good return right there if you can double your money or more. So they move them around like that. So these things are extraordinarily liquid, and that's why there's the dominant tool of war right now. These two factors, the numbers of the production and the fact that they can move around commercially, this laws of supply and demand. It's kind of a funny irony. They were made by a socialist system that didn't believe in the market economy. They broke out because the system was weak, and then the real system took over, and, uh, and now they're moving around. I'm going to add a third factor. I inventory guns all the time. Obviously, I'm interested in them. not interested in them because I'm what you call a gun nut or anything like that. I reject that label. I'm interested in them because guns are important objects. 
Guns tell us a lot about ourselves. They tell us a lot about our history. They tell us a lot about the history of the world. And I, I said this to someone the other day. To me, a gun is like, you know, a bird watcher looks at a warbler, and there are going to be a bunch of warblers over there in that bank of vegetation, three or four varieties. And through the ear and through the eye, that person who's really into warblers can tell them all apart at 50 feet with a pair of binoculars, at 20 feet with the naked eye. Tell them all apart. I can do that a lot with guns, too. And to me, that's important. Why? I'll give you an example. I just left Afghanistan. I, was, I came out last week. And I'm interested in where the guns of Afghanistan come from. They tell us something about who's supplying the Taliban. They tell us something about how that country is going. They tell us something about what we need to do to make that country more stable. They tell us something about the risks to ourselves and to our soldiers who are over there and the cost of this war in blood and in treasure. So I pay attention to the guns there. I walked out of the place I was staying. The New York Times has a little house in central Kabul. Uh, we're lucky. We got it in 2001 when we, it was, you know, full of sort of, uh, uh, you know, spent Taliban shell casings and, you know, discarded Taliban clothing. Uh, and it became the diplomatic quarter. The British brought the building next to us and put up the embassy and the Canadians on the other side. So we sort of piggyback off their security. Uh, we were kind of lucky. I walked out of our gate uh, a week or 10 days ago. And I'm always interested in trying to see where the guns come from. And I'd gone... 45, 50 feet, and I saw my first guy of the day with a Kalashnikov. And uh, if you know, like I said, like looking at a warbler, if you know how to look at the guns, you can tell how old they are at a distance. Uh, kind of like you can tell the difference, if I date myself here, but you know, you can tell the difference between a Chevy Nova and a Buick Skylark. Basically the same car, right? But they change the grill, they change the placard, they change the light arrangement, change the fender. You can kind of tell uh, when you just at a glance. And I saw this gun, and I knew immediately the thing was at least 50 years old. Uh, and so I went up to the guy and he let me take a couple pictures of it. It was one of the original Kalashnikovs, had a factory stamping from the Soviet factory that first started producing these weapons in 1949. They made a particular version for about 10 years. Uh, this was one of them. Why am I telling you this obscure fact? Why would you care? Here's why. This is one of the original Kalashnikovs. It's nowhere near its obsolescence. What do you own? What do you have in your life, all the things you use? Think about what you used in the last 24 hours, a car, a cell phone, a laptop, a light switch, a toilet, your, maybe you know, your fishing reel if you got a day off, uh, your television, your refrigerator, your wristwatch. There's a whole bunch of things you use every day, sort of self, subconsciously, right? What do you have that's more than 20 years old in that mix? What do you have that's 50? Most of you will say nothing. These weapons last and last. They were exceptionally well made for the conditions of war. Now most guns do last. Guns tend to be pretty well made. This is a special case. They last in some of the harshest environments on earth, 50, 60 years. We don't know how long they last yet because they haven't started to break. They break through what you would call a trauma. You back your car over it. It gets hit by a bullet or shrapnel in a firefight. It gets warped because your building burns down because, you know, someone just dropped the 500-pounder next door. Uh, that's how these things get destroyed. They don't wear out, at least not in the human time frames in which we understand. So you make 100 million of them. You lose track of them. They break out of your fences and go off into the general population of unstable countries, and they don't wear out. This is a real problem. 
And if you think it doesn't affect your life, I'd argue it does. You know, who's ever flown in an airplane? Pretty much everybody, right? You know, you think that uh, there's a hassle to get on an airplane after 2001? That all started really in 1972 at the Munich Olympics when a handful of guys with Kalashnikovs moved them into Europe. A handful of Palestinian guys and into the Olympic Village. They climbed the fence with them in uh, duffel bags, dressed up in mismatched uh, athletic suits, you know, track suits like a bookie, uh, pretended to be athletes coming back uh, after partying in Munich that night. I got into the uh, apartments where the Israeli wrestling team uh, and some of their coaches were staying and they commanded the attention of the world. We all woke up that day. I was a kid, I was about eight, nine years old. We all woke up that day and saw on our televisions guys with Kalashnikovs standing on balconies. That really was the introduction, in my view, of modern terrorism to the world. We got to start the clock a little sooner than we do. That's really when it all started. And these Kalashnikovs have a huge effect on us. Someone asked me at our table, how do they affect Texas in the terms of you know, with Mexico nearby and the weapons circulating there. And I actually don't have an answer to that. And there's a reason, but I'm going to get the answer. I'm going to find out and give it back to you later. Uh, there's a reason. In this country, our conversation about Kalashnikovs and about assault rifles is pretty twisted. My book, my work, my, uh, my travels are not really about the Second Amendment. I'm a foreign policy guy. I live overseas. I work overseas. Uh, I spend at least seven months a year, each year, in conflict zones. Uh, so I'm not as familiar with the national conversation hour by hour and day by day about the Second Amendment. It's just not in, my, it's not in my professional brief. I do know this. What we call assault rifles in this country aren't really assault rifles. They just look like assault rifles. Aesthetically, they look like it. Um, they're semi-automatic rifles that have the peculiar shape of an infantry arm. Uh, they're not the weapons we're talking about. I don't know what kind of weapons you have run along the border here well enough from what gets written about them to tell if these are the real item or if these are the Americanized sort of scaled down version. But I'll find out, I'm going to get that answer to you. Now the other thing I find is that uh, I'm a lot less interesting than you are. Um, so I want your questions because what you're interested in is something I can try to sort of tease out my little mental archive on this subject and shape my remarks to what you're thinking about. So ask me your question. I'll do all I can to answer them. And I'll give you my email address if I don't answer your question satisfactorily. Just hound me, and I'll answer it later. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I find it kind of disturbing in a maybe disturbing way that, that Russians actually have beaten us in terms of manufacturing a small rifle. It, it, it kind of works me that those popular weapons it's a great point. Can I riff on it? It's a great point. Um, we tell ourselves, you know, the Russians have their propaganda and we have our slogans. And slogans and propaganda are often uh, wrong or at least not quite right. And we, we tell ourselves that, you know, back coming in the 1950s, back when Detroit was competing for the Olympics, right? I mean, back when we had the sort of manufacturing base when Pittsburgh was a steel town that we had the best engineers in the world and we were seduced by our own slogans that we could make the best products uh, and we told ourselves that the centralized planned economy doesn't work right it's uh, inefficient it wastes its resources it doesn't know what the consumers want therefore it's disconnected from the reality of the marketplace these things are broadly true but in specific cases they're wrong 
Here's why. The centralized economy and the Russian education system, which is quite good, could really work well at a few things. The things it focused at and poured its resources into, it could do. So what's the result? They couldn't make a toilet. They couldn't make an escalator. The last thing you want is a Russian pacemaker. You, you know? It's the last thing. They can make a heck of a gun because that's where they put their resources. They made a tremendous rifle and a great helicopter, pretty good main battle tank. You don't want the refrigerator, your ice cream will melt. But the guns work. They made this, it doesn't mean we couldn't have and that our system couldn't have. So there's sort of separate conversations. Why is their gun good? Why was our early gun in Vietnam not good? Uh, they made theirs, they had a 15 year head start because our Pentagon ignored a shift that was happening in the way rifles were being made and conceived of. Uh, remember I talked about slogans? There's the slogan that we're a nation of marksmen, right? The frontier sort of far shooting, eagle-eyed guy, you know. Uh, that belief informed the types of rifles that we were making for nigh on 70 years. Big, long-barreled, heavy rifles that were hard to use. And they're very good in certain circumstances particularly in deserts where you have long ranges where there's not much vegetation. They were terrible in Vietnam. Uh, too long, too heavy, and, the, and our Marines and soldiers were outshot in Vietnam in the close quarters fighting that Vietnam presented because of its climate. We showed up late to the contest. In the 1960s, very quickly, McNamara, Secretary of Defense, and Westmoreland, the general who was running our effort in Vietnam, realized we were outgunned, and we rushed a gun out of the prototype into the hands of the troops. That was the M16. It's a good gun now. So I would, I would allay your concerns a little. I'm, I'm not an M16 or an M4 basher. I've, like I said, I've done, you know, I carried an M16 for six years. Uh, the A2 version, the newer version they made in the 1980s. Never had a jam with, with live ammo. I had a jam with blanks. Blanks don't count. Uh, never had a jam with live ammunition. I was given, when I went through the Ranger program for a week or 10 days or 12 days, I can't remember, out in Dugway, Utah during the live fire portion of that training, an old Vietnam era M16, I couldn't make it work. I could not make it work. But we got a good gun eventually. We just showed up late to the party. That's why our system didn't work. Did I answer your question? Is it, is it the best in the world? There is no best in the world because it depends on how you want to use it. All guns are compromises, so depending on how you're going to use it, you'd sort of, you'd sort of make your choice based on your situation. It's a very good gun. You were next to HUD. Hi, um, my name is Ahad, and uh, my table here is from Brookhaven College, and I appreciate you coming and talking to us. Uh, real quickly about myself, I'm a uh, Pakistani-American of Pashtun descent, so I think you've had an opportunity to interact with the uh, sure. culture a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to tell you a quick story and then get your reflection. Please. Um, as a child, I would spend every summer in Pakistan, and as a rite of passage, my cousins and my uncles and my father and all would uh, take me to the Dara Bazaar on the uh, border, and uh, one summer I'd fire off an RPG-7, and one summer I'd fire a fully automatic AK, and another summer I'd fire an anti-artillery. At Dar Adam Khel, the, the bazaar. Right, yeah. where they reverse engineered all those AKs. Um, but if I had not done that, or if I refused, if I lost my passage to manhood, and I imagine that you have seen that uh, it is not uncommon for children to walk around with AK-47s in that part of the world, what do you think about this uh, equation of masculinity, masculinity I think in a lot of places, unfortunately, they're linked. You know, we have a very robust 
Some would say it's under siege, but it's quite robust gun culture in our country. It doesn't behave this way. We teach our children, when we teach them to use guns, a completely different experience than that. And we teach a lot of safety, and we teach a lot of proper use. Um, and we don't teach them as young as I've seen in Afghanistan. Um, I have five kids, four sons, and I'll be teaching them to use firearms. My oldest one's 10, and it's not yet time. No way. There'll be time, you know. I would say this, weapons, you know, the AK-47 is a weapon, and weapons have always been tied up uh, in rituals of maleness, uh, of masculinity. A lot of cultures have done it, whether it's the shillelagh or the washing of the spear ceremonies in Africa. There's a lot of different ways that this happens. Um, it's the responsibility of the older generation to do this the right way. The way that Kalashnikov, you know, you go right back to my point, the reason the Kalashnikov is used this way, not because the Kalashnikov itself is bad, it's because there's 100, 100 million of them got made. Well, no one knows the real number. I use that number loosely, so let's put an asterisk next to it. So many of them got made that they sort of crept into the culture in this way. And you know, to the extent that we could get them out of the culture, I think Pakistan would be well served and the Pashtun population would be well served. But I don't want to make it just the Kalashnikov. This was going on with Lee Enfields, right? I mean, this was going on 60 years ago. Uh, some of the slogans might have been different. They didn't have RPG-7s. You weren't going to be firing a high-explosive, you know, anti-tank round. Uh, but another weapon would, might well step in and take its place. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Go ahead. Christmas of uh, 1944, Trump mm -hmm. That sure looks a lot like an AK-47. And then that coming from the German state and the Czech rifle you're right, uh, and I spent a lot of time in the book talking about that the, and researching it. The Kalashnikov's not an original item. It's a breakout weapon. It's a breakout weapon because so many got made and because it's so good at what it does. But the original idea was not Russian. The Russians and this is where, in some ways, their intelligence collection is better than ours. The Russians don't have notions of intellectual property. Socialism didn't come with that. They didn't have notions of patents. They were an agrarian society entering the modern world very quickly through, you know, Lenin and then the Trotsky modernization period of the early Red Army and then through Stalin. Uh, and they were self-conscious about being behind. Why did I tell you all these things? Because when they saw someone else's weapon, they looked at it and said, I want it. I want the best features of that gun in the hands of what my guys are carrying. Unlike us, we tend to look at it and say, that gun's not as good as mine. It wasn't invented here. That didn't, that didn't come out of MIT. Uh, I don't like it. And so we tend to reject others' ideas in the firearms. The Russians got, you're right, their hands on the German precursor to the Kalashnikov which was designed in the late 30s and early 1940s in Hitler's Germany. They got their hands on it on the Eastern Front, and it's a, what you're looking at is a conceptual copy. Uh, not just the gun, the layout of the gun is very similar. The individual components is different. The layout, you're right, it's almost identical. Uh, the basic platform is a German idea. Uh, but it began with the, with the cartridge. The cartridge is intermediate size. It's midway between a pistol rounds of the time and rifle rounds of the time. 
and they got their hands on those cartridges. They made the cartridge first in 1943. And then they handed the cartridge out to, let's say, you're one design team and you're another. Every table's a design team. You all get a box of cartridges, build a gun around it. You guys all then came to the table, and this is, remember I said the centralized economy can really work? You all came back a few months later with different layouts, different ideas, how to use this gun. You know what they did then? They played Mr. Potato Head. They said, you've got a good bolt, you've got a good front sight bolt, you've got an excellent magazine, I really like your overall layout. All of you go back and combine the ideas. And they went through three cycles of this. The result was the AK-47. The simplified version of the story is that a sergeant developed it. Uh, when it's told that simply, it's a lie. He was involved. He sat at the head of one of these tables. Uh, he was certainly involved. And at the end of the process, he had the best proletariat resume. And so, and Stalin had killed off all the heroes. The purge, the purge had liquidated the ranks. The guys like you, the achievers in the society, they were all dead. Uh, they were looking for a new round of heroes. And he and others got anointed, almost like he was kind of an Olympiad, you know? That's, so I agree with you. The what? The it was the Galil's a copy of it. Once the, once the weapon broke out, it, think of it as a platform. Uh, think of it as like a basic sort of software, and you can mix and match, and you can keep playing Mr. Potato Head with it. And that's been that's been going on for half a century. So, who's next? I want to go over here. Can I can I ask you to speak up? One problem with my line of work is I'm deaf. And what, what, what was the last part? What political? And how political the first part of your question is where did uh, where else besides Afghanistan, the Middle East, uh, are they prevalent? Basically, any place that's unstable, they're prevalent. That's why they're creeping right up to your border. Uh, you get out of any sort of reasonably well-administered. Western society as you and I know it, and it's pretty hard not to see these weapons and not to see their effects. Uh, and you're right, I've been talking about Afghanistan and Iraq because we're sort of talking about the news of the day, but a, a good deal of what I wrote about was about in Africa and in Vietnam where they first broke out. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time researching those things. Uh, political relations influenced the initial distribution of the weapon. The Kalashnikov is what they call in diplomatic terms a deliverable something you can give to somebody else that can make them happy. Uh, it can curry friends uh, and earn favors. It can be used as a sort of tool, as a chip in influence jockeying. And that's exactly how it got used early on. Uh, there were two very big political decisions that were made in the 1950s that ensured this distribution. The first was uh, Stalin and then Khrushchev. Uh, handed the weapon out to the like-minded states. They mandated the creation of the weapon, the reproduction of the weapon throughout the Warsaw Pact. They wanted to go to mass standardization of Soviet arms. This was a smart decision. They said, we've got a good enough gun. We don't want to waste our minds on designing a better one, our intellectual resources. So we're just going to, and we want all of the p soldiers in any potentially allied force to carry the same weapon, but then we only need one type of ammunition to outfit the world. 
they had learned from World War II, where all the European countries had different guns of different calibers, how horrible logistics could be in that system. So they made a decision to go to standardization. That was a political decision, obviously, with a security angle. Then they started to hand it out to people, they said, who could sort of undo the West's position in different regions of the world. They handed them out to Egypt very early. By 1958, they were in Egypt. They became a principal weapon in the wars against Israel, both the wars against the IDF, which is the Israeli military, and the wars against Israeli civilians, which you might call or would call terrorism. Uh, they became, uh, in this case, uh, almost like a mechanical pawn to be used against the West. And this was a shift because Stalin, for all of his aggression in Europe, didn't really have a larger global foreign policy that was so assertive. Khrushchev did, and he handed these weapons out. They went very quickly to China. By 1956, they'd been given to China, and the two largest economies in the world, or two largest militaries in the world, had parallel assembly lines. So it was very much a political thing initially. Soon, though, it became an economic thing. Once they got out, you can hand them out, but once you hand out anything, if it has a value, it enters the market, and it moves about by market forces now. There is question here. Go. Uh, I was going to say about the Russians, the Mr. Potato Head. When you steal from one, it's plagiarism. When you steal from two, it's research. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my question to you is, like, a crime of opportunity, do we have wars of opportunities because there's a warehouse full of these sitting down the street down there? Let's go start a war if we got any weapons. Well, I don't want to sound like Bill Clinton. It, 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 it depends on what you mean by war. There's a, uh, big wars don't get started because these guns are out there. No, big wars get started in capitals. Uh, you know, those are real decisions. But the little bits and acts of instability, and there's a whole swath of territory in this world that's unstable and out of our control. That's influenced by exactly what you what you just parts of Africa. A lot of Africa is in better shape than what you might think, but parts of it certainly. That's the case. Whole, whole entire regions of Afghanistan are off the grid because of these things are out there. And you can't go out there without getting shot at. I mean, you can go out, I mean, not past 20, 25 minutes anyhow. Uh, it's, so yes, it's an instigator. But I don't want to tell you war is going to go away if we do away with these guns. I tell you we might lessen some of the costs of war. We might make some places a little bit safer. But the energy of war is not because of guns. It's because of ideas. So you don't think there's a reason to eradicate them to try to soak them up and... Oh, I would be all... I, I would think that that would lessen the costs of war. It would make it harder to do human rights abuses on the scale at which we see them. I think, yeah, I think policing them up would be a good thing. The problem you have in this country is if you say that, people say, well, the next stop is the black helicopters coming into Utah to take my guns away. Uh, you know, the Second Amendment conversation here and the foreign policy conversation aren't really related in my view, but people often think they are. Um, and that, that, that influences that. But yeah, I think if there were fewer Kalashnikovs in the world, the world would be a bit safer. Got time for one more question. Who's going to be? <laughs> I, mean, I haven't done anything from this table. So go ahead. Can you talk about some of the counterfeiting that goes on? Um, what do you see? Where are the counterfeits most prolific? Um, do they work? And, and why, why is it counterfeiting if the price fluctuates? Is it just because it's so widely recognized? There isn't that much counterfeiting going on. I mean, in Pashtun territory, there are knockoffs made that are illegal, unlicensed, reverse engineered, not especially well-made Kalashnikovs, but they work. Uh, but that's sort of an anomaly. Uh, the Russians like to use the word counterfeiting uh, because they're trying to frame and marshal a business argument 
You know, the Russians now, they're capitalists. And uh, they don't like that all of these countries that they gave unlimited production to now have stockpiles and are selling their Kalashnikovs, which are cutting in on Russian business. So they frame this in diplomatic circles and at conferences as an act of counterfeiting, even though they handed out the licenses and they gave them the technical specifications. In most cases, there are countries that did reverse engineer them, Yugoslavia being one of them, which is a main producer now. Uh, most of these guns work really well. There's been some mistakes. The Hungarian model is garbage. They shorten the barrel too much, and you know, you're supposed to have a, a, the forward hand grip uh, is supposed to not conduct heat, right? So you can hold on to the thing. Well, they put a metal forward hand grip on it. So after one magazine, it's so gosh darned hot that you got to put it down. Uh, and we, in our infinite wisdom, bought about 100,000 of these and have handed them out in our Afghanistan, and the Afghan police really resent us for it. Uh, but most of, them, most, most of them work just fine. It's a very simple system, uh, and once you tool up your factory for it, uh, you, you generally have a pretty good product. Can I take another, or am I really out of time? One more. One I hate All right, one more. Okay. I, who was it? Who was it? It was you. It was you who I, was, I made eye contact with. This is not a gun issue directly, but uh, given how much time you spent in Afghanistan and how the news is being reported that sure. NATO and the U.S. are facilitating a conversation with the Taliban, and I just wondered if you had a view Wars end when one side gets tired, when one side quits. You know, that's what history tells us, you know. I don't say win or lose, because most wars aren't really won or lost, at least not in the modern day. Uh, they end, they peter out when one side gets exhausted. Uh, I don't think the Taliban's exhausted. Uh, I've been going there a long time, and it's a lot worse now than it used to be. Uh, I'm not saying that to be pessimistic. Uh, I don't... I reject the analysis that says, I got shot at today, therefore there's a big problem out there. There's a big problem out there for a few hundred yards in the area where that firefight occurred, but fighting is part of war. And the fact that the Taliban's fighting doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to win, if we can use that verb, or succeed. Uh, we need time to figure out who's going to get tired first. I think our country's getting pretty tired. I sense it. I think you guys do too. Uh, one of the great problems with counterinsurgency doctrine, which is kind of like a church that has, you know, that converted a lot of the generals in our country, is that while on the ground and in the conference rooms, counterinsurgency doctrine makes a lot of sense. I wonder if it's connected to the real political calendar. If it takes you 10 or 20 years to do something, will this country stay with anything 10 or 20 years? At the next presidential election, can our president, Mr. Obama, say, 10 more years, we're halfway? How would the country react to that? Counterinsurgency doctrine tells us we need a lot of time. The Taliban, kind of like the Chinese, aren't hooked up to a political calendar. They can last as long as they want. They're not going to get voted out of office. Uh, so this is my real worry about, you know, when we talk about exhaustion. Who's going to get to exhaustion first? Exhaustion takes many forms. In our country, it won't take a military form, but it could take a political form. You know, our citizens have a vote in this, and they'll decide if they think this is a value uh, to keep doing what we're trying to do in Afghanistan. And I don't pretend to know the answer to that. That's a conversation for the, for the, for the republic, not for a reporter. I try to inform the conversation a little, and then you guys have to come down where your hearts make you land. Um, but I don't think the Taliban's exhausted. I mean, I read a story this morning that says, 
the in uptick in drone strikes isn't just because the CIA is so furious about the killing of its officers uh, out in the eastern province, you know, where the suicide bomber, the turncoat got in. It's not just that. What they're trying to do is step on the head of the snake to make the snake quit. That, you know, they're, they're trying to punish the leadership of the Taliban to bring him to the table. That's a tactic. I tell everybody, I'll give you one story, I hope I don't run over. I was once, during Beslan, the school siege in Russia, um, me and another guy were sort of pinned down behind a concrete abutment near the school and the shooting was going back and forth in either direction. I wanted to be on the other side of the street, because if I reached the other side of the street, then I could go along a wall and get very close to the school and get a better perspective. I was 200 yards away, I wanted to be 100 yards away. Kind of a foolish feeling, but you know, you have your feelings in these types of moments. So I looked at the guy next to me, he was kind of smoking a cigarette, leaning against the rocks, and I said, hey man, you think we can get across the street? You know, I want to be over there. And he looked back at me, he said, and I say this a lot because I remind myself we're talking about tactics. He said, can we get across the street? He says, you never know until after. <laughs> so, that's my answer. We don't, we're not going to know until after. Chris, so. thank you very much. Sure. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.